Well, good morning once again, Life Church. I just want to get this out of the way. I'm wearing gold today to represent William and Mary. We are beginning our trek towards the NCAA tournament. Uh, NCAA basketball team, William and Mary Tribe, is playing up in D.C. Uh, if you don't know, uh, one of the coaches for the William and Mary team attends Life Church, and one of the starting guards attends Life Church. So we are we are huge Tribe fans. Come on, somebody! And uh, so they play at six o'clock. We don't pray for wins. But we wouldn't mind a good crushing of Elon at 6 o'clock today. All right. Uh, turn with, or actually, uh, before we turn to our Bibles, um, I want to just, I talked about some books last week. Uh, we, we are readers here at Life Church, And so I want to just throw some of those covers up on the screen that I had suggested, uh, largely focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be doing a series this summer called How to Be Human. And uh, I want to give you guys some reading, if you'd like. The book that I could not remember last week was Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Weird. is an incredible exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, um, as well as The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Incredible exposition of that passage of Scripture, uh, particularly as well The Good and Beautiful Life um, uh, by Richard Foster. But also these two other books that I mentioned specifically about the Lord's Prayer, the 71 words that we're looking at over the next several weeks. J.I. Packer's Praying the Lord's Prayer, and N.T. writes the Lord and His Prayer. I would strongly encourage all of you, uh, or some of you, whoever would like, uh, to get those. You can reach those on Amazon and so forth, um, and invest some good reading in your lives. And maybe if you're sitting here today and you're like, hey, I'm not a reader, Instagram is reading. Facebook is reading. What you just felt there was a disturbance in the force. I would suggest to you, hey, Christoph, I'm not on Facebook that much. Let me just say, why don't you grab one of these books, grab the thickest one, go deep and get the divine conspiracy. It's a big sucker. It's got little words, ain't got no pictures. I would suggest that you go on Amazon, you buy that. When it shows up at your house, just commit. Every time I feel the draw to look at Instagram or look at my Facebook, pull up this book instead. And some 400-odd pages will go faster than you think. Hello, somebody? Oh, the church is quiet this morning. All right. Going to get personal. All right. So uh, check those out. I would love for you to grow and uh, continue to grow in your knowledge of the scriptures and, and, and the Lord. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 15. As is our custom, we're going to read this passage together. We do not condemn people who read faster. We do not convict people who read slower. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We're going to read this together and we're going to be happy about it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. You ready, church? Read with me. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we continue our Lenten series, 71 Words, I want us to be aware that Jesus' words that we just read and we're looking at over the next several weeks are being shared because of his example, because of the life that he's living, and because of the disciples' inquiry into his example. Despite our culture's inculcation of information, we, we are just absolutely uh, starving for more information, more information, more information. Jesus is not interested in information for information's sake. 
We want to be educated. We want to be informed. We want to be informed. We want to be educated. Jesus is not interested in information and education for such a sake. Jesus is in, interested in inspiration towards transformation. I made a statement last week that I will reiterate for many weeks, and it's this. We are both to worship and witness Jesus. We are both to worship Jesus and witness him. Meaning, we are to extend our praise to him and our focus, and we are also to set our lives on a course that would prove that he is who he says he is. Jesus is indeed God, but in the scriptures and with his life, he also shows us the way to go. It's not one or the other. Jesus sets a precedent for us while also giving us a pattern to follow. He saves us in an instant, and then we work out that salvation incessantly for the rest of our lives. Jesus will take areas of our lives, and he will draw a line in the sand at the same time as showing us how we are to exist. J.I. Packer, from this book that I commented on, The Lord and His Prayer, or Praying the Lord's Prayer, makes this comment. He says, this passage of Scripture that we're looking at is a crutch, a road, and a walking lesson. I thought that was beautiful. There are deep waters. If you go to the next slide, there are deep waters in our 71 words, which is why we want to frame our conversation not just around a prayer, although it is. A place. These 71 words show us how to pray, but they also show us how we are to think. They show us how we are to dream. They show us how we are to imagine, how we are to interact. They show us how we are supposed to frame our worlds. They show us how we are supposed to be human. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your presence in this place. The promise of the scriptures that declare where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So we do not set our sights on an emotional experience today. We do not set our sights on something happening that we necessarily feel tangibly. But, Father, we recognize that you are here by simple arithmetic. Two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So we know that you are here. Help us to become aware of you. Help us to become aware of your presence. Help us to become aware of your conviction, your desired redemption for us. Mold us, shape us, make us more into your image. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Last week, we looked at the first words of Jesus, words one through four, pray then like this. We spent time talking about what that looks like. We spoke in depth about how this directive from Jesus, pray then like this, is not just how to entreat Although it is that, but as well, it means how do you expect? How do you lean with your life? Jesus is saying, hey, lean then like this. Will then like this. And so we're going to work through, uh, if you're taking notes this morning, the title of our conversation is 5 through 12. Last week was 1 through 4. This week is 5 through 12. So the first couple of words we're going to look at, 5 and 6, our Father. Our Father. Now, before I get too deep, if I may, uh, when the scriptures talk about God, when we talk about God, no matter how learned, how expressive, how illustrative we are, the best we can and the best, honestly, the best that the scriptures can offer us are depiction. They are image. They are illustration and metaphor when you talk about God. 
understand me today that all of our concepts of who God is, what he looks like, what he feels like, are from our context. They are from our experiences. They are from the way that we see. And one of the most beautiful things about Jesus is not that he changes us, but that we would change how we see him. This is why it's so important to understand where it is you come from. What is your filter? What is your background? What is your socioeconomic frame of reference? Because as we can perceive is only based on our personal context. This is why it's also important that we understand who is pouring into us. How many people are we allowing to speak into us? How many people are we allowing to shape us? Because when we say God is like, we are immediately and emphatically boxing the infinite in finite terminology. The scriptures will speak to God being like a wind. There are times where he's referred to as a king. There are times where he's referred to as a rock, as a refuge, as a fortress. There are times that God is referred to as the mother hen. There are times that God is referred to as looking like a dove, an all-consuming fire, father, the carpenter next door. And so Jesus uses these words, our father. The words that he uses to start are striking. They're striking. Our father. They're asking him, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to lean. Teach us how to imagine. Teach us how to expect. Teach us how to ask. Teach us how to relate to God. And he begins with, okay, our father. It's not just the father which rocks the hearers. And, and honestly, let's be, let's be real today. It is difficult to relate to God in a fatherly concept, maybe because of the broken relationship you have with your father, maybe because of what you understand a father to look like in a home or in a context or a way or means or a space in which we live. It's difficult to re- receive that relationship, that role as parent, protector, and provider. But the words here aren't just father, it's our father. The words that Jesus uses here are hemon pater, which means, literally means father of us. It's not just father, it's father of us, which unsettles the listeners, which unsettles these disciples who are bent on zealously throwing over Herod and the Roman government. They have a thick, much like all of us do in this place today, they have a thick understanding of us, Verse them, it's you against me. Tribal relationships and divisions. And Jesus frames the very beginning of these 71 words with Father of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in his Gost of Discipleship, he says, it matters little what form of prayer we adopt or how many words we use. What matters is the faith which lays hold on God and touches the heart of the Father who knew us long before we came to him. Genuine prayer is never good works, an exercise or a pious attitude, but it is always the prayer of a child to a father. 
I was, I was born and raised here in Williamsburg, and I was in the Fife and Drum Corps in Kelowna, Williamsburg, and so I grew up with some guys. And we, uh, you get dressed with a person for eight years, you, you tend to get close to somebody because you got to keep secrets, amen? Uh, so uh, we would all, in the locker room, we got dressed for eight years together. We did other things. We played the Fife, we played the drum, we traveled all over the world and did some really interesting things and some neat opportunities. It was a job, it was uh, history lessons, it was music lessons, and so uh, even to this day, we uh, carry on friendships that started when we were 10 years old. And one of my friends in particular, a gentleman by the name of Kevin Wells, Kevin had this real, I mean, you, you get to know a person when you get dressed with him. Did I mention that? But there were, like, Kevin did so many things that were just different. And one of the things that Kevin always did was when he talked, to, and we would always, we were spending the night at people's houses, we were going here and there and everywhere. And Kevin would always refer to his mom and dad as mom and dad. And I know you're like, okay, Christoph, that's not that weird. But when, you're ta- when you say, hey, mom called me, we're going to have uh, chicken for dinner. Y'all want to come? And we're like, see, you all are not different like Kevin because you would have said, my mom, my dad. But he's like, we'd be talking. He'd be like, yeah, yeah, dad told me that we could come over later. And we would always be like, dude, use a personal pronoun, man. Like, help a brother out. Like, this is so weird. But he just continues to say, no, mom, no, dad. He, like, that's who they are to me. Like, but that's not who they are to us. He's like, yeah, but you figured out. You know what I'm, I mean, come on, use context. And we kicked Kevin out of the friend group. But he would just say, mom, dad. And we literally, all of us had to go through mental gymnastics and recognize, he ain't talking about my mom. He ain't talking about my dad. Accepting this Hamon Pater, the father of us, that Jesus broaches this passage with, speaks to God's frame of reference when he looks out and surveys all of creation. It is with an always inclusive and communal sense. Right from the get-go, Jesus says, pray then like this, our father And he is declaring there is no them. The first thing that Jesus says about your willing, your entreating, your living, your imagining, your way of being human, there is no them. There's no such thing as them. Bonhoeffer writes, he says, the call of Jesus when we receive and step into that relationship, the call of Jesus binds us together in a brotherhood. And I would go one further than that because it's an understanding that when we accept Christ into our lives, when we begin to follow hard after him, it's not just us that becomes a brotherhood, but we begin to see every man, woman, and child on the face of the planet as God sees them as brothers and sisters. Maybe they are not intimate with Jesus. Maybe they have not accepted Jesus, but that does not negate the fact that they are part of me and I am part of them and their exclusion of themselves does not negate me from being able to include them the identification of father of us also draws from the accepted weight of responsibility and role found in first century Jewish home structure and organization we have lots of different homes and I celebrate 
the home structures and who works and who stays and who goes out and who comes back. And it's, it, I mean, it's where we are a various culture and society, but we have to understand that when Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples, there is a very specific set of circumstances that people understand to be the home. And it was a thick understanding that in the Jewish first century, the parents were in charge. Like, they were overseers. They were responsible. They cared for and controlled. God sets himself up as responsible. When Jesus declares our father, he's saying, hey, you need to look at the world like you look at the home. The parents are in charge. The parents care for. The parents run. The parents are responsible. Throughout the scriptures in Genesis, in Psalm 24, Leviticus 25, Psalm 15, other areas, you hear the refrain of that the world is not just a place, but it's God's. God's creation. He is in charge. He cares for. He owns. He is the one who makes sure it all runs correctly. Consider how your frame of faith and expectation shifts if this is your knowledge and application for God. I'm seeing some of you kind of glaze over. You're like, yeah, God's, God doesn't see the world as the world. God sees it as his house. God sees it as a place that needs to be taken care of. That's why he tells in the, in the creation narrative, in the beginning poetic lines of scripture, hey, be fruitful, multiply, take dominion. These are words of invasion. These are words of, of planting and caretaking. Because it's not just a place, it's a home, it's a house. Consider how your frame for life changes when you think, when you truly think in those terms. And I think we lose it sometimes because people will glibly call God Father. Yeah, Father told me this, Father told me that. Okay, you've got an intimate relationship with God. I'm so happy about that. But do you look at the rest of your circumstances in your life within that context? That if he is indeed your father, he is in charge. He cares. He is responsible. Think of the vast difference. If you pray this prayer by saying my father. Or if you pray this prayer saying your father. Or if you pray this prayer saying our father. Think of your context for God and how he relates to you. If you really do see him as a forgiver. One who forgives. Who is waiting to forgive. Who is etched and ready to forgive or do you see him as a taskmaster keeping score with the star chart and the brownie points I don't think any of us or very few of us would be honest when we take the multiple choice test test that says hey uh, do you think God is a brownie point giver a gold star taker or a forgiver we're like oh God's a forgiver but we don't live that way God is ready and willing and wanting and aimed at forgiving. Do you see God as a chasee? Someone who is only found when you pursue? Or do you see God as the chaser? Someone who's actually running hard after your heart and your life and your will. I'm not here to communicate that it isn't both and it's sometimes. We have to turn and we ask and we seek and we knock. But can we understand that God is not someone that we run after. God is someone who runs after. Our Father. The final thought from those 
first two words is that we are to learn to shift, to adjust from God's guidance. Our Father, Father of us. Listen, type A people, OCD, people who care about everything all the time. Can it get a what, what? When you fall short, when you miss it, it's okay. You might be surprised, but God was not. God didn't come for the healthy and the righteous. He came for all us jokers. It's in the Synoptic Gospels that he says, hey, I've not come for the righteous and the healthy and the perfect, but I've come for those who are in need, those who are sick, the sinners, us. So when we have those moments when we falter and we fail, our Father communicates, because again, we're speaking to first, Jewish, uh, first century Jewish tradition, that the vast majority of families and homes were set up with this apprentice understanding. Father was going to teach me. Mom was going to teach me. All that I'm going to be, they are going to instruct. They are going to provide for me. They are going to give me. I'm going to learn. But we don't want to learn. We just want to know. We are very uncomfortable with being without knowledge, so we fake it until we make it. N.T. Wright writes this. He says, he, Jesus, learns his trade by watching what the Father is doing. It's okay that you don't know. Jesus didn't either. He says, I do what my Father does. I do as my Father says. He, Jesus, learns his trade by watching what the Father is doing. When he runs into a problem, he checks back to see how his Father tackles it. That's what Jesus is doing in Gethsemane. When everything suddenly goes dark on him, Father, is this the way? And we can do the same. Our Father. The next two words, in heaven. Everybody's getting a vision like, oh, this is going to be long. <laughs> it don't matter. There's not like real basketball until 6 o'clock. The Lakers don't matter. Come on, somebody. In heaven. In heaven. Now, I would plead with you today to take everything you know and just and put it on a shelf. So when you hear the word heaven, can we please stop thinking about it the way that Americans think about it? Can we please stop thinking about U2 songs with streets paved with gold? Can we please stop thinking about these ethereal clouds we're all floating around with harps? Can we please stop thinking about it as what we have created it to be? Can we for a moment, for a moment, I would ask you for five minutes, give me five minutes, that we would actually Listen to what God says about heaven rather than what we want heaven to look like. No? That's fine. I'm going to forge ahead anyway. In the Jewish tradition, which remember, this is how Jesus is speaking to us today. And he, he comments on heaven and throughout the scriptures we hear kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. These things will be used interchangeably. They are not detailing a location or a place. It is not a, a moment of matriculation where we will graduate to, oh, oh, and there are trumpets and everything going. That's not what it's going to look like. That's not rather what it does look like. When Jesus speaks of heaven, he's speaking to an ideal. He's speaking to a realm, a dimension with a certain and known and fully accepted character. When he used the word heaven, all his disciples knew exactly what he was talking about. And it didn't have pearly gates. 
Heaven is an existence, listen to me, heaven is an existence where things are as they could and should be. Just let that settle in. We're not going to get into a massive elevator one day and just whoop. Heaven, according to the scriptural context, according to as Jesus communicates it, and don't worry, if you're like starting to get nervous about, oh, is he going to tell me what hell really looks like? I'll save that for a whole other series. But let's just talk about heaven today. Heaven is an existence where things are as they could and as they should be. Packer writes this. He says, the Greek gods were thought of as spending most of their time far away from earth in the celestial equivalent of the Bahamas. That was good, right? But the God of the Bible is not like this. Granted, heaven, where saints and angels dwell, has to be thought of as a sort of locality because uh, saints and angels are God's creatures, exist in time and space. But when the creator is said to be in heaven, the thought is that he exists on a different plane from us rather than in a different place. That God in heaven is always near to his children on earth is something that the Bible takes for granted throughout. Remember, we're talking about our 71 words, our Father in heaven, Father of us in heaven. As Jesus begins his prayer, his teaching, his response to the inquiry of the disciples asking, how should I think? How should I imagine? How do you see the world? I want to see the world the way that you see the world. Jesus begins his prayer. He sets the responsibility in position, Father, and then he quickly squares the possibilities of the future towards better. Heaven. Jesus' conceptual future does not look like escapism. Does not look like getting to another place. That's why he uses terms like salt of the earth, light of the world. That's why he's consistently sending the disciples out into the communities, out to the villages, out to people. Because it's not about, hey, let's all just get together. Let's all just hem in. Let's all just be sheltered and let's close our eyes until we can wait for the dawning day and we can all be safe. That is not a scriptural context for what it means to follow Jesus. He is constantly, go. Greater things you'll do. Go. I'm going. Now you go. 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 We want to come to me. We're all scared. It's so dark. It's so awful out there. And I'll be honest, it does. It stinks out there. But God is faithful. And he calls us to go in the midst of those things that can be frustrating. Quite the opposite of escaping, Jesus turns to investing, first himself, and then you. When he says, our Father in heaven, he's specifically saying, the last word has not been spoken. Don't you dare give up. Don't you dare tap out. There's unfinished business. There are open doors in your future and insight. N.T. Wright comments in his book, The Lord and His Prayer. The first occurrences in the Hebrew Bible of the idea of God as a father comes when Moses marches boldly in to stand before Pharaoh. And he says, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go that they may serve me. For Israel to God, to call God father then was to hold on to the hope of liberty. 
The slaves were called to be sons. When Jesus tells his disciples to call God Father, then those ears with ears to hear will understand. He wants us to get ready for the new exodus. He wants us to be as we are intended to be. He wants us to no longer live in bondage, but break through to be sons and daughters of God. We see this throughout the Gospels as Jesus is walking about the countryside, engaging people right where they are, and saying things like, go and sin no more. I don't convict you either. Rise up, little girl. Give her something to eat. (laughs) Romans 4.17, that reality of speak to those things that are not as though they were. Hebrews 6, hope being an anchor. Hope is not wispy. Hope holds us down in the midst of the storms and the circumstances. I would submit to you today that we are all, as we are made in the image of God, we are all hardwired for hope. If you've ever been in a circumstance where there is no hope, you don't feel great, do you, church? It's because the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. I love the fact that the Bible makes me understand why I feel the way that I feel. I don't feel great. Why not? Because I like the Browns. Well, you know what? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. A lot of times I have found in my life when Tanya comes, she says, hey, babe, are you okay? That's my first note, and I've commented on this before, to think and say, obviously, I thought I was, but now that she's saying I'm not, I'm obviously not because I'm not super aware. But because she's asking, I should probably think. And it's often tied to the fact that not something's going wrong in my life, but the fact that I think something will go wrong in my life. Because I'm not hardwired for hopelessness. I'm not hardwired for disappointment and defeat. I'm hardwired for hope. I'm hardwired for victory. I'm hardwired for overcoming. And when my life and circumstances don't look that way, I start to feel it before I even realize it. Hope is heavy. It's an anchor for our soul. And so God determines to speak that into us, our Father in heaven. Again, it's not a place we're going to graduate to. It's a place in in existence where things could and should be. Hallowed be your name. Names in the wisdom tradition in in Jesus' time aren't just what someone is called. I remember the the process of naming our children, Asa, Jude, and Zoe. I was very anxious about naming our children because I know what children can do with names. Are you with me? And I can't stop the genius that is an eight-year-old child and a 12-year-old child that can just do wonders. Like, they can't do anything on a math test. They don't know what 2 plus 3 is, but they can drill down to the soul of a kid's name like you never even dreamed of. And I was not going to, I knew right off the bat, I was not going to give them easy pickings. So we inspected every name and every word that could rhyme with said name. There were so many names that I tossed out. Tiny was like, baby, no one's going to, you don't even know, girl. They think about the craziest things. I mean, Christoph, Christoph is pissed off. Don't say that. Y'all say that. We find you another church. We find you whatever. You know, Fahrenbach, like, yo, what's up, Ferry? You know, just all kinds. And there's so many things I can't say because it's inappropriate on a microphone. But I was like, it's not going to happen to my kids. So we were like, Asa, Asa, okay. And they all had to be short because you know what it's like? Do you know what it's like to have a name like Christoph in third grade when you're all learning how to write? And, and they always pick teachers, second and third grade teachers. Don't ask the child to write their name because it, that, that's a sliding scale of difficulty. Ben, Sam, Sally, Nancy, Joy, they're all like, oh, I can write my name. That's why they all have beautiful handwriting to this day because they didn't have the anxiety of Kristoff. 
I forgot the I. Christoph, why aren't you done it? Because my name is 43 characters long. Heartburn just thinking about it. I hated writing in second and third grade. That is why I have bad handwriting today. We thought about nicknames. We thought about monograms, length. That's why Jude has the longest name. And it was tough. Four letters. Didn't have it by accident. Naming in the Jewish tradition and in, in, in Jesus' wisdom tradition establish and express one's character and essence. It wasn't just, oh, that sounded nice. That, that looks good on a monogram. No, it communicates depth. That's why the scriptures, you see Abram changing his name to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, Saul to the apostle Paul. That's why God wants himself to be known as, I mean, let's just hit the pause button for a second. If I'm God, I want my, like, my other name to be like Fuego. Like something, it's got, you get some branding and marketing appeal. But no, God says, no, I'm Emmanuel. With. In Proverbs 22 and verse 1, it says, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. The name is an essence. The name is an established character. Consider the first of our 71 words, Father of us, who makes himself responsible, whose name is holy, and how that attaches to us. Hallowed be your name. How that attaches to us, our character, our conduct. Because God is holy, and yet he's also not separate. Oof. Our Father, Father of us, who's holy. I don't know about you, but have you ever been in those scenarios where people are saying things in the name of Jesus and you're like, ooh, I don't want to be attached to that. Or I have indeed been to a Browns game, and I'm proud to be a Browns fan because it develops much character in my life. But I see people doing things and yelling at others and I, you know, having my kids with me or whatever, and they're like, do we act like that? I'm like, no, we are Browns fans. We do not act like that. Are you with me? I've had proud moments where Asa will turn to me and he's like, hey, Dad, I heard this at school today. People talking and they said this about that and, they, you know, and they're Christians. Is that what we think? And I look at him like, is that what you think? He's like, no. I'm like, all right. Because even though we are imperfect, the perfect wants to be attached to us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He is holy and yet he attaches to us. Which church, if you aren't following the course of our conversation, we do not influence God. God influences us. So when he comes with his holiness, it doesn't devalue who he is. It engages who we really are. We're holy. We're special. We're unique. There's value and there's worth in each and every person. Go and stand with me today. There are lots of ways that I could land this conversation today, but I simply want to uh, land particularly on that hope piece in heaven, 
Even as God's name is hallowed and he is holy, he invites that same that is within us to be drawn out. And so if you're here today and you find yourself in a place of hopelessness, you find yourself in a place that is frustrated and filled with disappointment, welcome to the club. You're human. This planet is hard. It's cold. It's frustrating. People can be really mean. But I want you to know that God's declaration over your life is that there's better. Listen to me, that there is better. And I'm not just saying because you're going to make it that way, because, hey, everything works out at the end. That's not what I'm communicating. I'm communicating that within the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus declares, our Father, that you have relationship, you have opportunity to relate to and connect with your Father, our Father, in heaven. So I would submit to you in your thoughts and your circumstances Jesus declares there's better with him. There's better in him. But it begins with you acknowledging Jesus. Jesus. Remember, this whole thing starts with the disciples saying, hey, we're watching you. We like the way that you think. Why do you think the way that you think? And Jesus says, you can do it just like me. So if there's anybody here today that you'd like to make an attachment to Jesus, we'd love to give that opportunity. He's a lover of your soul. He died on a cross for the opportunity to speak into your life. And his course and avenue and direction of circumstance, according to the scriptures, is heaven, the better. And I believe there are people here today that you are. You are deeply disappointed. And I'm not here to argue You shouldn't be disappointed. I'm not going to argue that. Because a lot of areas in my life, I'm like, I'm super disappointed. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And yet, somehow that thing lives in context with knowing that God is good. And he loves me. And he's for me. And he's a firm foundation. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And those things that don't add up, I speak to those things that are not as though they are. Because God said in heaven that there's a better. I just believe there are people here today that you need to let go of hopelessness. And you need to actively grab hold of hope, but not in just a new age, just I'm going to believe. No, you need to believe on Jesus. And so the opportunity I want to give today is for you to believe on the name of Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that he loves you, he's for you. And what you would be saying is, I agree. I want to let go of those things. I want to grab hold of what he is talking about. I want to have hope. I don't want to wake up discouraged every single day. I don't want to consider suicide on a regular basis. I don't want to turn to the alcohol. I don't want to turn to drugs. I don't want to turn to illicit relationships. I want to turn to those things that fill a void. I want what God has for me and how he has crafted me to be. If you're here today and you want to commit to receiving who Jesus is, is and what he has done for you. Just slip your hand up right now. We're all going to pray in a moment. Anybody today? I see your hands. Anybody else? I see your hand. Anybody else? Thank you so much. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. All right, we're going to do a simple prayer. Simple prayer. We're just going to say, hey, Jesus, I give you my life. You're going to say, Jesus, I give you my life. Pray with me. Jesus, I give you my life. Let's pray it again. Jesus, I give you my life. Father, you see the hearts and you see the hands lifted. You see the hearts made available to you today. We thank you so much for what you're doing. We thank you for what you're speaking and everything that has been initiated in this moment, the lines that have been drawn in the sand. Father, we thank you and we celebrate that. But Father, even more, we celebrate the line and the trajectory that you have created for them to be sons and daughters of the King. 
To be ones who can hear the voice of God, who can ask, Father, how am I doing? Father, what could I step into right now? We thank you for the salvation of souls, and we thank you for the opportunity to work out that salvation. We thank you for heaven, not far off and distant, but right here and right now in our part in that coming to fruition. In Jesus' name, everybody said, come on, give a clap offering to Jesus in this place. Hey, if you prayed that prayer and I saw your hand, I'm not going to chase you because i got a bad hamstring. But if you want to come up and connect with me, follow the gathering, we'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, give you some tools. Jay is in the back as well. Brenda is in the back. Uh, anybody that's smiling uh, with a Life Church shirt will be more than happy to pray with you and connect with you. Uh, but there are other steps. Jesus, I give you my life is just one. And we'd love to come alongside you and support you in that. Um, so come find me. Come find somebody. We'd love to pray with you uh, and see this thing all the way through. Let me leave you all with a benediction today. I'm just going to read it for, the, uh, for time's sake. May we come to experience God's choosing of us and fighting for us, at the same time offering the same invitation to everyone else we meet. May we be present in our circumstances and at the same time accept Christ's promise of better. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better. We love you all so much. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.